Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Trimbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with class of 2012's Haley Lenahan, digital media specialist at Basis Technologies. Haley will share with us how she began running social media marketing for a local fair trade shop on the campus of University of Missouri as an undergrad to now managing major brands across multiple media platforms for the Chicago market. Joining us from the class of 2012 is Haley Lenahan. Haley, can you tell us what you do? Hi, um, I currently, I actually just switched roles about two weeks ago, um, but I am a digital media specialist at Basis Technologies. Congrats on the new job. Can you tell us um, where you left, uh, where did you go to after you left WeGo? Um, so after I graduated, I started my freshman year of college at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, small liberal arts school and actually transferred after my first year and ended up graduating from University of Missouri, so Mizzou. What was the pull to get you to, to go to University of Missouri? Um, so when I graduated high school, I thought that, and the whole time I was really looking at colleges, I thought that I wanted a smaller school. I really liked the idea of having that one-on-one -on -one connection with professors and having just kind of like a tight-knit class. I feel like I had that a lot in high school and was kind of looking to replicate that. And then once I got there, um, those aspects of a small school were great. I did make really good friends and I did get to have really one-on-one -on -one connections and like relationships with my professors, but um, a lot of kind of what I didn't realize I was looking for in the college experience, I didn't get. So I'm a big sports fan. I'm really competitive. So like football games and things like that weren't available where I was. And so I kind of felt like I was more at like summer camp instead of college and wanted to kind of see what else was out there and went to go visit a friend from high school at Mizzou. And just kind of knew from walking around campus that that was that felt right. When you go off to the University of Missouri, did you know uh, what particular field you wanted to start in? How did you begin to narrow your focus? Um, when I went, I thought I knew, but looking back on it, I don't think I had any idea. Um, when I, towards the end of high school and um, really throughout my college searching experience, I really fell into the idea that I had to do something that was really impactful. Um, I spent a lot of time volunteering in high school and getting really involved in those kinds of ways and felt like I needed to kind of channel that into my career. And so um, I actually went to go speak or see the founders of Tom's Shoes speak and was like, that's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to invent something that like impacts these people like people's lives in such a good way and so I ended up going to Belmont for a social entrepreneurship program which was very specific to the school not a lot of schools at the time had a focus like that um, so when I transferred that was still kind of what I what I envisioned for myself and what I thought I wanted to do but Mizzou didn't have that type of program so I kind of had to piece things together in a way that seemed to make sense. So I ended up being an international relations major and I had like a public service focus when I was like, as kind of like, um, like, I guess, focus area for my major. What was some of the coursework like for international studies, global studies? What, what do you remember? Like, what were some of your favorite classes? Um, I Honestly, I loved all of the courses I got to take. I got to learn a lot about um, humanities and different cultures and kind of the way that we all work together um, 
throughout college, I ended up tacking on a business minor. And so a lot of my business classes, I chose to focus on like international business and things like that. So um, I spent a lot of time just learning about like political, how we connect with other cultures politically, how other cultures influence our culture um, and a lot of things like that. That was kind of that international piece was what I was really interested in. I wanted to kind of learn as much as I could about things that were different from me. Um, One of my favorite classes I took in college was a Native American religion class. And I knew absolutely nothing about it going into it. And my professor was Native and had so much just like personal experience that he could draw from and things that he experienced that were just nothing like I ever had. And it was so interesting. I remember like I would sit in class and just from like start to finish, I was like in awe with everything he was saying. Um, And they were just these these practices and these traditions that are so foundational to the place that we live and that I didn't really know anything about until I took that class. For this particular degree, some programs you, you just take, you do coursework, but did this one have a, like a capstone or a senior thesis that you had to work on in order to, uh, to complete the program? Um, it did. It had a lot of kind of quirky requirements, which I think is part of what drew me to it. Um, everyone who was in it was required to study abroad. Um, we all were required to do some type of service project, some type of like internship um, that had kind of a service focus. So for mine, I ended up interning at a fair trade store that was in downtown Columbia, where Mizzou is. And um, it was this like, really, really like just beautifully curated little store with goods from all over the world, from small artisans all over the world. And I got to, I ended up working for them in a marketing role, which is kind of how I ended up where I am now. Um, And it was like the hands-on kind of real world experience, I think was so helpful and like formative for me kind of finding the stepping stones to get to like where I ended up wanting to be. Do you remember what were some of the projects or, or like when did, when you started to kind of get a little bit more range and freedom in that role in marketing for that little company? What were, what was like one of your first yeah, endeavors or projects where you're like, you know, I kind of have a knack for this. Like, do you remember like when you tried it and you're like, that actually worked. I'm, I can do this. Yeah. So I actually went to interview for a volunteer coordinator role and my, who became my boss at the store was like, this seems a little too in your wheelhouse. And I was like, well, isn't that kind of a good thing? Like that means I'm qualified. And she was like, I, I think that you like, you're up for a challenge. And so she asked if I would be interested in doing more of a social media coordinator and marketing role. And I was like, that sounds really cool. I really had never thought about it before. Um, And so my very first project with within my internship was um, there was this brand of shoes that are called Seiko's. They're still around and there are like a hundred different ways that you can tie them. They're like um, a sandal and there are like a hundred different ways you can tie them. And there are all these different ribbons and leather straps that you can use to tie them. And so the like campaign was called 30 days and 30 ways. So I had to go and take 30 different pictures of these shoes tied 30 different ways and post one a day on their social media sites. Um, And after a while coming up with unique ways you can do that is a little bit difficult and, but it was really fun. And I think getting that challenge and getting to kind of use this creative part of my brain to come up with those pieces is like really what kind of got me excited about like, oh, this could be something that I would have fun doing kind of long-term and with it having that tie back to um, the fair trade store, like it felt like it was kind of marrying more than one interest together and kind of making me realize like, oh, like you kind of, you can do that with your job. You don't have to like pick one box and stay in that. And I like that. Now, did you, so this would have been around 2013, 14, 15. Was this, a, a, which, 
social media was most dominant at this point because I don't think TikTok had quite made it onto the map just yet. So what which uh, social media were you primarily uh, expressing yourself or expressing the brand with this? No, this was long before the days of TikTok. Um, Facebook was still the biggest, which probably dates me more than I would like it to because I don't <laughs> feel like I'm old. But um, <laughs> Facebook and we did have an Instagram but Instagram was like really starting to get its footing then. So um, it was definitely not our most popular or most engaging platform at the time. Um, did you do any studying abroad while you were uh, in school? I did. So it was a requirement of my major, which um, honestly was part of the reason I picked it because it was a lot easier to be like, see, mom and dad, I have to go study abroad. Um, <laughs> than just like, I want to. Um, so I studied abroad in Perugia, Italy which is right kind of smack dab in the middle of the country. Um, and it was probably what like one of the best and most formative things I have done in my life. I spent pretty much all of my schooling from like sixth grade through college learning Spanish and then went to a country that didn't speak Spanish. Um, and that experience, I also was the only person from Mizzou who went on the program that I went on. So it wasn't like a Mizzou sponsored study abroad program. It was, we had an affiliate with a school that was hosting us. So it was like the first time in my life that I was ever like kind of fully on my own, fully out of my comfort zone. And it was definitely the experience that like, I think started to like kind of form the person that I had been growing into. And then the person that I then like have become since then. I think stepping outside of my comfort zone in that way was like the best thing I could have done. And I definitely recommend everybody try it if they're at all interested, not just studying abroad, the whole stepping outside of the comfort zone thing. What do you think is the first essential step to giving yourself permission to step out of a comfort zone because that's a it's a very common thing but it's not it's not easy and I mean oftentimes it is that first step I mean if if, is there a way that like you could maybe articulate like how do you do it like it's just because it's not everyone has that capacity to, to to do that or at least think they can do it how did you allow yourself to do it I think that um and I've actually thought about it a lot leading up to this conversation because I knew that that's, it's something that impacted me so profoundly in my life. Um, And I was definitely the kid who was afraid to do it. Um, I kind of was thinking back on my experience in high school. And I think so much of high school feels like forever and it feels so like so big at the time. Um, And I, don't think that I knew it at the time, but I was so afraid of what people thought of me. And I don't fully know like how you kind of break out of that, but I think the more you kind of just, as you grow up, you just, you spend more time with yourself and you just kind of get to know yourself and be more comfortable with yourself. And I think I focused a lot, um, as I got older on just kind of like who I was like inside, like to my core and like making sure that I was okay with who that person was. And if I was, it felt a lot easier to then do those things that maybe felt scary because I felt like I, I liked who I would be putting out there and that you can't, you can't control like the way other people respond to things, but you can control the way that you respond to them. And I think I kind of got to a point in my life where I was like, I don't want to be what's holding me back. So I'm going to go for it. And other people are going to have their thoughts on that either way. But as long as like, I'm kind of doing the things that I feel like are making me happy and I'm not hurting anyone that those are things that I want to continue to pursue. It's, it's, it is so tricky because high school, you are so dependent on how, what others think of you. And, and just like what you said, like you just need that distance from yeah. that, that 
need to be accepted and you know really thinking through your thoughts and that that reflection that you talked about did allow you that type of uh, permission so uh, that's, yeah that was and I was I was a kid who grew up in the school district so I started at Evergreen went all the way through West Chicago so a lot of the people I knew I had known since I was five and like that's just it's natural that those people have these certain ideas of you, whether they're positive or negative, but you kind of feel more like that's who you have to be because that's what is expected of you. And then as you kind of get that distance, you realize like, well, I can actually be whoever I like want to and kind of grow into the person that I want to be regardless of those, those notions. And like, I'm still friends with a lot of people from that part of my life. Like I've, I was just in two of my best friends from high school's weddings this past summer. So like, it's not like those relationships have to change. It's just like you kind of grow into the person that you want to be. And a lot of times your friends grow with you in their own way too. So you, you finish up at Mizzou. What's the first job that, what's the job market like for you at that point? And and do you have an extra type of um, kind of, glow in your resume because you did so much work in social media at that point when you hit the job market? Um, So I personally did not feel great about my job prospects when I graduated. So I graduated in 2016. I honestly couldn't tell you how the job market was, but at the time I felt like it was great because everybody around me seemed to be getting jobs and I did not have one when I graduated. Um, but I ended up getting one within like a month and it was something like, again, that I never thought I would do. Um, so kind of, I feel like at every point in these like pivotal moments, I feel like I've had an idea of what it was going to look like. And then I ended up doing the opposite, but it's all worked out. Um, so my, throughout my experience at Mizzou, I was involved in something called Mizzou Alternative Breaks, which, um, through we had like a winter break or a spring break you would go on a service trip instead of like going on a big spring break trip with your friends and um I did it all three years that I was there the last two years I was involved in leadership with the organization and on my very last trip I was on a Habitat for Humanity build in Chattanooga Tennessee and got to know the AmeriCorps members that were working on our site really well and one of them was kind of asking me like oh, you're a second semester senior. What, what are your plans? And I was like, you know, like I'm, I'm applying for things, but I don't, I don't feel like I know exactly what I want to do. And he's like, well, you should apply for AmeriCorps. And I kind of like filed it away in my head and I was like, yeah, like maybe that's something I'll do, but like not really thinking I would ever do it. And then it was probably two weeks post-grad and I'd didn't have a job and it was really nice sitting by my parents' pool every day, but I felt like I should probably uh, figure something out. And kind of on a whim, I just went on the AmeriCorps portal, filled out. It's just kind of like a standard application and you can select kind of places you'd be interested in going. And I said I would go anywhere. I said I would pretty much do anything and just kind of forgot about it. And a couple weeks later, I got a call from somebody who was looking to fill an ESL teacher position in Austin, Texas. And I'm pretty sure my response was, are you sure you called the right person? And ended up interviewing with him and got the job and moved down to Austin, Texas in August. Now, Austin, by all accounts, it's a pretty cool city. I've heard many good things. What was it like uh, living down there with all the great, uh, you know, it's a huge college town. Obviously, it's it's got an incredible food and music scene. That must have been a really exciting place to uh, start uh, right out of the gates out of college. It, it was. It was, again, kind of like my experience going abroad. It was probably one of the more foundational things I've done in my life. I moved there never having been to Texas before, um, not knowing anyone in Texas. And me and my friends who lived there always say that we got lucky and we lived there at like the shiniest moments of Austin where 
the word was starting to get out how cool Austin was, but it was definitely still like old, weird Austin. And that was where I lived for like all of my early 20s. Um, And it was nothing like where I had lived before then. It was just it was a different world from like what I was used to. The The music was great. The food was great. You could be outside all year round and it, it was so much fun. Yeah. That's that. I mean, it's, but I've always heard obviously South by Southwest is one of those music festivals has got to be like a bucket list for so many people to go to because the, there's just so much great stuff there. So uh, tell me about uh, your work then at AmeriCorps. So um, got to AmeriCorps or got to my training and the way that AmeriCorps, at least my program works is um, you kind of get a job with a larger organization and then they place you at a smaller organization. Um, So I was like contracted through um, the Literacy Coalition of Central Texas and then I was placed at a nonprofit called Foundation Communities. And that is where, like, that is where I went to work every day. And that's where I taught my English classes. Um, So the program that I was in was an adult education program. So all of my students were over 18 for the most part. I did let one kind of sneak in under the radar um, because, I mean, if you're willing to come to class every day, I'm probably not going to kick them out. Um, But I had no teaching experience aside from I worked at a preschool in college, but preschool age kids and adults are very different. Um, So we have about, we had about a week or two of kind of like an intensive training um, that gave us kind of like a skeleton of a lesson plan that we could follow. Um, It was more so learning about the populations we'd be working with and the state of immigration in the United States and kind of making us aware of the barriers our student face our students face but also um the kind of things that we could face when we're out in the world as AmeriCorps members um when you're on AmeriCorps you are on food stamps and it's not a salaried position you get a stipend and um it is not a very large stipend they consider it a living wage for the area that you're living in um but in a lot of ways, it puts you in the position that your students are in. And um, it was truly like one of the most like eye-opening experiences of my life. Um, I would not have survived that year if I didn't have food stamps. Um, like one of my first weeks there, my car broke down and I did not have the money I needed to fix it. And while Austin is great, public transportation is not very robust there. And like, I just kind of had to figure out how to make it work and carpool when I could and try and like pinch pennies so that I could pay for my car to get whatever it needed fixed, fixed. Um, And so it was very much like right out of the gate, rip the bandaid off and you're in it. Um, So I had probably two ish weeks of AmeriCorps training. And then I had a week of shadowing at, my job site where there was a teacher who was leaving and I was going to be taking her position. Um, And I was teaching the beginner level class. So most of my students, English proficiency was not great. Um, Some of them didn't even have a very high literacy level in their own language. And they were from all different sorts of backgrounds. I had students from Russia, from Mexico, from Brazil, from Morocco, um, really all over the world. And so there's not really a a native language for all of us to speak besides English. So it was very much an immersion experience for them and for me. Uh, (laughs) And it was one of my favorite things I've ever done. It must have been incredible to hear the stories of how they came to the United States and uh, and then just, again, they're starting out to their American experience uh, as well. Do you remember when what were some of your kind of better days where you felt that you were really kind of uh, kind of breaking through with your students and kind of really seeing the type of uh, language gains that made it all worthwhile? Um, oh, my God. There were so many, really. Um, I, one of my students was 
a cardiothoracic surgeon in his home country. He was from Russia. And so like his education was like miles beyond mine. He, but he couldn't speak English. And so it was very hard for him to know what he wanted to say and just like not have those words in his vocabulary in the language he needed them in. Um, And his wife was also in the same class as him and her English was a little bit better. So we would also, he was a little competitive and would get a little bit frustrated when she knew the word he was trying to say. Um, And I remember he, I would do this assignment where I would be telling them a story and they would have to write down what they thought they heard. And I would usually repeat it a few times and then go at my normal pace the last time all the way through. And so they had a couple of tries to kind of fill in the blanks where they, they needed. And then um, I would always kind of go line by line and be like, okay, who, who wants to, who wants to relay what I said here? And um, he one day asked if he could do the whole thing and he did so well. And like just seeing how proud he was of himself and like I was so proud of him and like just kind of having that moment where he felt like he could communicate and could understand um, was so special. How long were you at uh, AmeriCorps and when did you um, uh, take a new position to with a, a different job? Um, So I was there for, my contract was a year, and then I actually got hired on at the nonprofit that I was working at to be the program coordinator for the adult education program. So I stuck around in a different role and would kind of sub every once in a while in the classes, but was more at like an administrative and like coordination position um, after that. And I was there for about two and a half years, and then that is when I started doing a master's certificate program online to get a marketing master's because I had kind of, at that point, um, I loved what I was doing so much, but I definitely felt like I was experiencing a little bit of um, compassion fatigue. I Mm. really loved my students and wanted to do whatever I could to help them. And a lot of times there's not much you can do. Um, we have systems in place that I can't change by myself. And, um, it was a very tumultuous time in the United States. It was 2016 through 2018. And it was a tough time politically to be working in that environment. And, um, it definitely took a toll on me. So I kind of went back and thought like, well, I really enjoyed doing some stuff in marketing when I was in college and I'm going to kind of revisit that. So I started doing a master's certificate program um, and had known that I was going to move back to Chicago um, where I am now. So I was in a long distance relationship at the time. My whole family was here and my living situation in Austin, like all of the roommates were kind of leaving and it just felt like the natural time to pivot. And so as I pivoted locations, I also pivoted careers. Um, And when I moved to Chicago is when I got my first job in like marketing and media. So what was the, what was the first official title and what were the kind of the initial projects you were working on? My first official title was an media associate and I worked in out of home media. Um, So I was at a company called Publicis Media and out of home advertising is basically anything that you see outside of your home. So like billboards, bus benches, buses themselves, um, that kind of media advertising. And as an associate, um, you do a lot of the, like the background work, you, you do a lot of billing reports and you do a lot of building out flow charts and, media decks and things that the clients will eventually see, but you don't really, they don't really maybe know who you are. Um, And then I did that for about a year and a half. And then 
was promoted and was a media buyer, um, still within the out of home world. So on once I moved into that role, that's a little bit more of um, working with the client. And they will kind of come to you with a media plan. Sometimes they're super flushed out. Sometimes they're not. And um, a lot of times it'll be like, we have a new store that's opening and we want to raise awareness about it. This is where it's going to be. This is when it's opening. So this is when we want the campaign to run. They give us some dates. And then my job would be to take that information and then go send out RFPs or request for proposals out to vendors who actually own the ad space. Um, and then based on what I kind of received back from them, I would negotiate prices and kind of narrow down inventory to pick locations that I felt like best reached the goals that we were trying to reach. Um, and then you would turn around and present that to the client. And if you got approval, you'd help with production of materials and then you'd maybe get to see your billboard. <laughs> so, so it was the mo was the majority of then the campaigns not in a digital space. It was more in that the like, would we call it the tangible space uh, where uh, where the, the, your your work was uh, mostly seen. Um, a little bit of a little bit of both. It's a little bit convoluted in media because in the world of out of home, um, static would be like that physical billboard. Um, but then they also do have digital billboards. So like for us, that's digital. But if now that I'm in like the digital media world, those are very different terms. <laughs> um, so I didn't actually do much of anything in the digital space until I got this role. Are there any static spaces that are surprisingly more effective than others? That, and, and how do you know? Um, so everything, for the most part, um, there is this like auditing system that you use that kind of based on where a billboard's located and how many people they think are going to go by it every day um, or every week or however they, whatever time frame they measure it in, you can kind of get as granular as you want. Um it gets like a, a rating, a score um, that's usually within like, um, it, they call them impressions. So like how many people are going to be seeing this? Um, so like a big wallscape in downtown Chicago is going to have higher impressions than a billboard on the highway in like rural Kansas. But obviously your billboard in Chicago is not going to do anything for a new store opening in Kansas. So you kind of have to go with what you have in the space you're going to be in. Um, and a lot of times I was buying in areas that I had never been before. So you just kind of have to use your best clues of this seems like it's on a busy road that people would be more likely to see than this, which seems like it's maybe on a back road or kind of down, down a dirt road that like mo most people probably won't be driving down. I always think about that because, um, you know, back home, you know, you might, there's a, there's might be a billboard on route 38, uh, heading into Winfield or out towards, uh, Geneva. And I, and I always, I always think to myself, like, I wonder how much that's going for. Um, but what you're saying is, and it, it makes obvious sense that probably as you get closer to, let's say O'Hare, that the prices of those billboards are just going to be through the roof versus what's on route uh, 38. Is it safe to say that the airport, um, billboards probably are the most expensive in Chicago, or would we be surprised that there's another place in Chicago that has the highest uh, uh, kind of worth for billboards? Um, I would say that for the most part, yes. Um, anything, so they call it high impact, anything that's like a hand-painted mural or um, just like a really large space that takes up like maybe part of the side of a building down in the city is going to probably be the most expensive in the area. But um, the inventory all around the airport is definitely pricier than something that would be kind of out in the suburbs. But 
then the idea of like supply and demand also kind of plays in because yes, they're more expensive and they're usually more or they're usually more sought out. So they can be a little bit more expensive, but then there are also more of them. So you have a little bit of power to say like, well, if I don't like the price of this one, I could always get this one where out in the suburbs or even further out kind of in the more rural areas, you kind of get what you get and you don't really have that leg to stand on. Um, so it, there's actually like a lot more that goes into like, cause that's kind of what I thought when I was first going into it is like, well, these ones are going to be expensive because of where they are. And these ones are going to be super cheap because who's, who's living out there? Like who's going to go buy these? Um, and it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that, but then you, you also run the risk of the, the, them that they might cancel each other out because of the noise yeah. of so many of them in that proximity uh, to each other. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you could also maybe kind of touch on the idea of like, you said that you're able to kind of read the data that comes back in the kind of metrics uh, of the impressions and all of that. Um, I mean, obviously we're not going to get into the, the weeds of like the, the types of um, uh, software that you use, but w- what is your favorite way to kind of interpret and then say, ah, now I know what to do. Like what's, what, how do you know that is the most obvious way that the campaign's working and was very persuasive? Um, so in out of home, it's a little bit different. Um, now that I'm in digital, there is just like an abundance of reporting that I'm not used to. So that's actually something I'm really excited to get more involved in. But I always, when I was working in out of home, something that's always been interesting to me, like all throughout school and just life is people and like the way that people think and like what drives people to do the things they do. And so in an out of home plan, I would have the, the big, like the main goal of the campaign for my client. And then we would usually have an idea of, of who they're trying to target. Um, And so a lot of times I would try to think about who those people are and where they might be going and what I think they might be doing. Um, And if I'm trying to place an ad for a grocery store, I'm probably not going to place it next to like a top golf where I don't know that a ton of moms who are doing grocery shopping are going to be. And that's like a very, Mm -hmm gendered and stereotypical example but it's kind of the easiest way to paint that's how it works yeah yeah um and so just kind of thinking about people's habits and kind of who I think their ideal customer or it wasn't always like a a service like that um but just kind of who I think their target audience would be and what I think those people would be doing or might be interested in um and in what I was doing before a lot of that just kind of had to come from like my own brain and like kind of what I would think now moving more into digital. Um, there are so many different tools and platforms and reporting metrics that we have available to us that, that make that a little bit more tangible. So if you just kind of like as a, as in your position that you're in right now, when you're looking at the industry at large, What's your favorite campaign? Like, like, wow, this, this, this brand or this company, they're they get it. Like, they just like, who do you have kind of a uh, an admiration for in, in terms of um, uh, which which company seems to really ha- uh, just capture the spirit of of your favorite qualities of a good campaign? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, on like a personal note, I really really love Patagonia. And the way that they are able to do what a lot of people are trying to do while still being so true to who they are as a brand and kind of the, the values that they were founded on um, and still create really, really impactful media and a really good product. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, they are one that I would probably try to like emulate if I could. Um, I think in terms of like good advertising, 
I remember, um, and this also just kind of speaks to like more of who I am as a person, but I remember a couple years ago and they've done it a few times in different ways since, but Heineken had a campaign that was, um, the idea of like sharing a beer with somebody who's different than you. And so they would have these two people who had really strong opinions, but they were differing opinions. And they would kind of show them a video beforehand of this person saying kind of all the things they don't agree with. And then they would have them sit down and kind of have a drink together. Um, And the whole idea of it was that like, we're not as, as different as we might think. And there are these like common ties that bind us. Um, And I think creating a more human aspect to advertising is important. And I think it's only going to become more important. Um, Especially we kind of talked about it earlier with like TikTok and all these other platforms becoming so much more a part of just kind of our everyday lives. People have a lot more say in what they consume and what they want to consume and they hold brands more accountable. So I think kind of just like forcing out this like fluff media that has maybe worked in the past might not work as much moving forward. And so I think brands like Patagonia or like that Heineken ad who are kind of thinking of either how can we be impactful, but in our own unique way, like Patagonia, or how can we kind of be relevant in a way that is also like going to connect people and going to maybe get people to think about how they can connect with people that are different than them and people who don't agree with them. Um, I think those are the kinds of things that I look at and I'm like, that's really good. That's a really good version of what I do. How do you keep current and sharp? Like I always kind of, I, I like thinking about how, like for myself, I'm, I'm always like trying to read and listen to new ideas with uh, on podcasts just so I have a new story or a new angle to bring to my students in, in such a way. Like what are the ways that you kind of like, what do you read and what do you listen to to kind of stay uh, current uh, in, in your field? Um, so one of the things that was kind of recommended to me when I was first starting out in the media space is to subscribe to newsletters. Um, there are a ton of online publications like Ad Age and Ad Week and a million others that you just, they're free. You put your email in and they send you a newsletter every day. Maybe you read it, maybe you don't. Um, and it was something I did right away without really having to think about it. And I mean, being completely honest, most days I probably don't look at it, but on the days that I do, um, I, I always see something where I'm like, oh, that's really cool that somebody's doing that. Or, oh, that's, I would have never thought to do that. That's awesome. Um, and then with what I do, so much of just being a person on social media <laughs> adds to then kind of how I can translate that into my everyday campaigns, just kind of seeing the trends of what's happening while I'm just look, scrolling through my phone is is definitely helpful. So you have just started th- within this month uh, a new position. Um, what was uh, what was the pull to come to to this new job? Um, so I this is another thing I've just kind of learned about myself as I've gotten older. Um, I really thrive when I'm learning. I like to be continuously learning. And when I feel like I'm not, um, I do stuff like go get a master's certificate or um, during the pandemic, I got my yoga teacher certification and now I teach yoga every week. Um, And I just like, like I've always been a big reader. And so in my last role, I, there were so many things I liked about it and I had gotten to a point where, where I knew I was good at it and that was really fulfilling. Um, but I also just, I didn't know if it was my forever thing and I don't think it was my forever thing. And I knew that I had the opportunity to move up where I was or I could instead 
kind of take on a new challenge. And it felt one, like a good time in my life to do that. But two, um, a big pull for me to do that was actually um, seeing the way that like my partner, my boyfriend felt about his role. So we, we live together, we both work from home. So I get to see kind of I'm basically his coworker. <laughs> like I get to see a lot of his day to day at his company and he's a consultant and works for one of like, they're, they're not small, but a smaller, they're not one of the like big three, big four. I don't know which one it is in consulting, but they're not one of the major firms. Um, and he's been there for a long time and he's got to really feel like he was part of a community and part of a growth. And he, he like really stands behind the values of the company and feels like he's kind of working towards the company's growth goals, like with his coworkers. And I was at a really large agency. And while it was such a great place to learn and because it was such a large agency, um, I got to see so much in such a short amount of time. I, I noticed that I, I kind of wanted that. I wanted a little bit more of a smaller environment. I wanted to feel more connected to, to the company I was working for and a little bit more excited about the way that they were working in this space and kind of the growth that was potentially there. Um, so where I am now is um, a smaller kind of agency, but it's also an ad tech company. So we have this technology that we sell and it felt very much like it's kind of like of the moment and it's, it's going to be what media is growing towards. And it felt like an exciting time to then kind of come in and be a part of that. So you, you started this job and, and you're, you're working remotely. I am. Yes. How, how does that, I'm just, I'm curious, how do you begin a new job at a new company and still do it remotely? Like how, how, what's the whole learning curve and kind of getting a sense of the ethos of the company when there's no kind of, at least initial um, uh, learning or uh, uh, a physical space for you to go? What's, what's that? Um, It's hard. (laughs) It is definitely hard. Um, I am fortunate. So our headquarters is in Chicago and it's a few miles from my apartment. So I could go in if I wanted to, but the interesting part is the team that I work on is based in Dallas. So even if I went in, my team wouldn't be there. And I'm sure I will eventually start going in. I was going in once to twice a week before I left my last position, just because I liked the way that it broke up my week. It felt good to kind of get out of the house, get into the office, see other people and like work with other people. Um, So I'm sure I will get into that maybe after the Chicago winter's over. Um, But it has definitely been a big learning curve and a lot of a lot of the learning has to be independent. Um, I have managers who have client presentations and calls that they need to be on. And I, they have to trust me to continue to learn and do some of these trainings in a self-guided way. And kind of in the same way that I had to trust what they were what they were presenting when I was interviewing because it was the first time I hadn't really gone through interviews in person. And when you're not in a space and you're not sitting with people face to face, it can be hard to kind of know, like, are they just really good salespeople or is this kind of, is, am I going to be getting in myself into what I think I am? And um, luckily so far so good. I I feel like I knew what I was getting myself into. And while there is a very, a pretty steep learning curve, especially with, um, having to be remote. Um, I am very fortunate that my team has been really good about just kind of checking in with me. Um, They set up a really good schedule of about like half of my trainings are self-guided. Half of them are kind of one-on-one with another team member. So I'm getting that face-to-face, even if it's over the computer, connection with some of my coworkers every day. And then I also get to have that time where I feel like I kind of have autonomy over my day and I know what trainings I need to get done and I can kind of pick and choose how they fit into to my day. And that gives me a little bit more of like a sense of, of grounding when starting 
in something that's very new. Can you, can you disclose who some of the clients are that your company works with? I actually don't know if I'm allowed to, <laughs> I'm still new, um, but I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. Okay. Well then, then we'll just say that they're very important and they're doing really cool Very things. important. Um, I can say at least that like one of them is a company that like everybody would know. Oh, well that, that, that. A little bit of mystery. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, gosh. So um, this has been great. Uh, Haley, I, I, this is, I, I, it's so fascinating to kind of hear uh, just the, the journey of, of all these different places and how you keep on challenging yourself and, and, and all of that. And you've been so generous with your time uh, tonight. And I was wondering if you could um, leave us with, for some, with some tips for success for current Wildcats. Um, so I feel like I definitely hinted at it early on, but one of my just like biggest pieces of advice would be to not let being afraid of trying something new hold you back. Um, and that you don't have to be good at everything right at the beginning. Um, it's, it's okay to be new at something. It's okay to have to learn and it's okay to fail a few times. Um, but if it's something that you're really interested in or feel really drawn to, um, it's worth exploring. Yeah, that's just great. That's so, so true. So true. Well, Haley, best of luck uh, with your new position and so excited to uh, hear all the new campaigns that we'll find out about what you're working <laughs> on at some point. It will be known uh, what that is. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us tonight. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's We Go V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at We Go Places Podcast or on Twitter at We Go Places. We Go Places.